I'm Pastor Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm not Pastor Doug, but he's about to come on. Pastor Doug has been pastoring in the Valley for over 35 years. It is rare to meet a, a man who's pastored for, for, uh, for, for decades long. And he's been a, a mentor to our team, a, a wise counsel, and an encouragement to us. And he's here to bring uh, the word of God to you this morning. So can we give a warm church a welcome to Pastor Doug Mai? All right. Thank you, Chris. Well, it is really uh, good for me to have the opportunity to be with you this morning. Uh, I've known your pastor, Brad Blakely, for uh, many years now. It's always a joy for me to be in a conversation with him. I just think the world of him and love it when we have an opportunity to sit down and talk about ministry, talk about what God is doing in our lives. But, but you've got a great team, too. And uh, I've had the privilege of getting to know a number of people on the team, like Pastor Chris. And uh, it's just uh, such a joy to see what it is that God is doing in this church, the greater ministry, but what God is also wanting to do through the church. Uh, I'm also thankful that uh, the church at Lake Mead is a part of Transformation Ministries. I serve on the staff of what we call TM. And TM is an association of about 240 churches. And we uh, are very, very serious about helping pastors continue to grow and develop as spiritual leaders, about helping churches be on mission, the mission that God has for them, and about planting new churches. One of the things that we do is uh, kind of come alongside the church and the whole ordination process. You've got a number of your team right now that are being prepared for ordination, and they're going to come before the ordination council maybe in October. And uh, I'll have the privilege of sitting along on that council along with some others. But it's just going to be a joy for me to ask some really hard questions. So if you got some stuff you want me to ask them, you know, you give it to me and I'll make sure that we bring it uh, when they come. But it's an honor for me today to be here as a part of your friends and family series. And when uh, the invitation came from Brad a number of weeks ago, I said, what do you want me to preach on? He said, well, we're really allowing the people that we're inviting to just speak about something that God has put on your heart. So share something that God has put on your heart. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share an idea with you. But the idea comes from a verse in the Bible. And the verse in the scriptures comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Now, this letter is considered one of the great theological treatises in all of the scriptures. But I want to be looking at the very end of Paul's letter to the church, the believers at Rome. And it's a place where he talks about his upcoming travel itinerary. And there's a verse in that upcoming travel itinerary that just jumped out at me. And I want to share it with you this morning. So let's read what Paul has to say at Romans 15, beginning at verse 23. And see if you can identify the verse that you think has meant so much to me. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through 
and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they receive this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Any ideas what verse meant so, has meant so much to me? It's verse 30. And in verse 30, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggles by praying to God for me. Now, I think the reason that this verse jumped out at me has something to do with the current situation in which I find myself. For uh, a long time, I have been involved in ministry. Most of that time, I've been the pastor of a local congregation. And as a result, I've come to understand pastors. I know the struggles that they face, the burdens that they carry, the things that bring them great joy. But today, I'm no longer a pastor of a local congregation. I serve on the staff of Transformation Ministries as the developing pastor's lead. Some people describe my role as being a pastor to pastors. And so in that capacity, I want to listen to pastors. I want to encourage them. I want to serve them. I want them to help, uh, I want to help them live out God's calling in the, in the best possible way. But I have to be honest with you. There are times when it's uh, frustrating. There are times when I feel like I'm not really in the action. At times when I feel like I'm not helping the pastor the way that I want to be able to do so. There are even days where I don't feel like the pastors really want the help that I may be able to give to them. It was in my quiet time a number of months ago, reading through the book of Romans, that this verse jumped out at me. And I think the reason that it just jumped out at me is because uh, the Apostle Paul equals, uh, equates praying with joining in the struggle of another. Now, I've never seen it in quite the same way. I've read the Bible a lot. I've read books on prayer. I've engaged in praying myself. But I've always thought of praying as I'm here, there's someone over there for whom I'm praying. God is both here and there. So when I pray to God, God is going to, by his power, reach out and help the person who's over there. And there's certainly some truth in that. I mean, I think it's a biblical understanding. But this verse throws a different light on it. 
This verse suggests that I'm here and the person for whom I'm praying is over there. And when I pray for that person, what happens is I actually join them in the struggle that they are going through and invite the powerful presence of God into that struggle. See, in prayer, I join in the struggle of another and invite God to be a part of that struggle. And this has made a huge difference for me. Uh, it's given new vitality to my prayer. It's, it's helped me to understand that regardless of what a pastor may be going through, regardless of whether they know it or not, I can be a part of what's going on in their lives by praying for them. And I have since expanded this way beyond pastors to include all the people that I care about. I was grabbed by this verse for a particular reason. But I've reflected on it a lot since it first grabbed me. And what I want to do this morning is very simple. I want to walk through the verse with you. We'll just kind of go word by word, phrase by phrase. And then I want to look at a wonderful story that comes to us from the Bible, which fleshes out the meaning of this verse. And then I want to think about and challenge you to apply it in your own life. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. You're going to hear me recite that verse a number of times. Now, first of all, I want you to notice the overall direction of the verse. Uh, the Apostle Paul doesn't talk about the ministry that he has to the Romans, not here. Instead, what he does is ask the followers of Jesus who are at the church at Rome to minister to him. And what he asks is specifically is that they pray for him. It's a reminder that every one of us in this room at times needs people praying for us. And if you don't have someone who is praying for you, it's either because they're just not a part of your circle or it's because you don't think that you need their prayers. And I simply want to say that neither of those are good. Now, Paul says, I urge you. And that word urge uh, is an interesting word. It's more than I, I'm requesting of you or I'm making a strong suggestion of you. That word urge is tied into this appeal that he's making. And maybe the best way to understand the appeal is to go back to a similar appeal that has the very same words three chapters earlier in Romans chapter 12. This is a passage that many of you have some familiarity with. And in this passage, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, Paul is urging the believers to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, and his appeal is to the mercies of God. He's appealing to everything that God has done for them. And he's saying, in light of this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, what he says is, I urge you to pray for me. And his appeal goes in two directions. He appeals to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the love of the Spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the reason that you and I can pray. In his death and resurrection, Jesus opened a way to God. And there are many images that the scriptures give to us of what this means. For example, the tail, the, the, uh, the uh, curtain in the temple was torn 
There's a new and living way that he's opened to the Father. He talks about how we can come and stand at the throne of grace. But what I want you to notice is the full title that is used of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Jesus, the God-man who was born at Bethlehem and lived this incredible life and carried out this ministry that's been unparalleled. Not just the Christ, the Messiah who was spoken about in the Old Testament, the one who fulfilled Scripture by suffering in our place and paying the price for our sins, but also establishing an eternal kingdom. Not just the Lord, the one who died and was buried and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and today sits enthroned over everything as the King of kings and Lord of lords with all power. No, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, I urge you in light of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus is about, I urge you as someone who is following him and is literally in him to join me in my struggles by praying for me. Jesus is the one who has not only opened the door and made it possible for us to pray, but he's also the one who brings his authority and it's all authority in heaven and on earth into the situation that we pray about. Also, the love of the Spirit. So if the Lord Jesus Christ is the reason that we can pray, the love of the Spirit tells us why we want to pray. It's because when the, Spirit, the love of the Spirit creates a desire for us to love other people, and if we love other people, we will want to pray for them. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, or the New Living Translation uh, translates the verse like this. Um, I can't find it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's in there somewhere, but it really doesn't matter. But, but what happens is that the love of the Spirit comes into your life. And uh, Romans 5.5 5 talks about how the, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. You see, if you are a believer in Christ, when you, when you opened your heart to Christ, the Spirit of God came into your life. And the Spirit of God has done all of these incredible things in your life. But one of the things the Spirit of God has also kind of turned on a faucet that's called the love of God, and there's this stream that began to flow in your life, the, love, the stream called the love of God. And it just sort of splashes out on people. It's what allows you to experience a oneness with other followers of Jesus but it's also uh, what allows you to care deeply about people who don't even know Jesus. Now, is it possible for someone who doesn't have the love of the Spirit in their hearts to pray? I think so. I think people across the world do it all the time. But their prayers are going to be me kingdom prayers. Their prayers are going to be selfish prayers. The prayers are going to be about them, maybe the people that they care most about and they're not going to have insight. No, when you, the love of the Spirit leads you to pray, you will pray kingdom prayers. And you will pray uh, with wisdom for the people. You will want the best for them. And you will find yourself praying for people uh, that are your friends, but also people that you may not even like. But the Spirit of God gives you a love for them. And you will continue to pray for them because love doesn't end. 
So I urge you by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, and then he goes on to say, to join me in my struggle. Now those five words are translated by a single Greek word. And that single Greek word is the word sunagonizomai. Uh, it's a big word. It's a compound. Uh, the first word, soon, uh, simply means with. That longer word, agonizomai, means to struggle with. It has the idea of joining in another struggle, or it can be used in a way to say to partner with. Now, I want to ask you a question. What word, what English word do you see in this big word, sunagonizomai? It's the word agony, isn't it? And that's because our struggles are sometimes agonizing. Living in a world that is fallen and broken, being with people who are sometimes very self-centered, dealing with stuff in your own life, just the challenges that we face can cause us to struggle. But those struggles can sometimes be agonizing. And one of the things that can make them agonizing is that the struggle, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 12, is not just against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers. It's against authorities. It's against uh, powers in this dark world, against the, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. What that means is that Satan loves to get involved in the things you struggle with. That's his, his, what, his MO. And, and he wants to uh, sow seeds of doubt. He wants to intensify the situation. He wants to create discord and hatred. Uh, he wants to make you confused and ask all kinds of questions. You see, Satan wants to take the trials that God allows in our lives and turn them into temptations that will destroy our souls. There's a struggle. And today, many of you know people who are struggling. I know that some of you here this morning are struggling. But you know people who are struggling. Maybe it's a, a spouse or a parent, your child. Maybe the, the reason is financial or there's a health concern uh, or there's an addiction that is just so debilitating. The person doesn't need to struggle alone. You can join them in their struggle by praying for them. Now, the word used for prayer here is not an unusual word. It's the most, one of the most common words for prayer in all of the scriptures. But I, I think it's instructive because there, it's a compound again, and it has the idea of a wish towards, a wish towards God. And it reminds us, friends, that prayer is always towards God. That's what makes prayer, prayer. Prayer is not just a thought that I have in my mind. It's not just a wish that I have in my heart. Prayer is towards God. My wife and I were with uh, our neighbors about a week ago, and we shared with them uh, one of the challenges that we were facing in our own family. Our uh, son-in-law serves in the Marines. He's back at North Carolina, at Camp Lejeune now. And no, the challenge is not that he's tempted to drink the water, the, the challenge is that he is going to be deployed. In fact, he just left last Tuesday. And uh, that leaves our daughter in a challenging situation. She's going to be a single mom for our two grandkids, little guys, for the next four months. And as I shared this with them, 
they said, um, we will keep you in our thoughts. And I thought, you know what? I, I appreciate that. And, and, I, and I know it was the best they could do. But just because you're in someone's thoughts doesn't mean that prayer is happening. Friends, prayer is towards God, and it's only when the thoughts that we have in our minds or the desires that we have in our hearts or the words that we may be saying to ourselves are expressed towards God that we are praying. Finally, I want you to notice uh, that what we have here is a wonderful expression of the Trinity. Did you see that? The Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Spirit, pray to God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what that means is that every time you and I simply pray towards God, we are already experiencing the fellowship of the Trinitarian God. So like we are invited into that circle of love and into that circle of power. And when we pray, the, the God himself descends uh, upon a situation. And when that happens, you're talking about all the power in the world, and you're talking about a love that we can't even begin to fathom. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, to join me in my struggles by praying to God for me. Well, that's the verse. There's a wonderful story in the scriptures that illustrates it. It's found in Acts chapter 12. And uh, let's read it, and we'll talk a little bit about it. But in Acts chapter 12, and this involves not Paul, but Peter, we, we read that it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Herod was an incredibly suspicious man. He was a jealous of everyone king. Uh, he had someone who was absolutely power-hungry. And when he learned that he could carry favor among the Jewish leaders by executing Christian leaders, he went after it. He had James killed. Peter was next. But we read in verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison. He's going to be brought out the next day. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now let me put this in Romans 15, 30 terms. So Peter was in prison, but the church made a decision to join him in that cell, praying to God for him. And what happens next is an absolutely, <laughs> such a fun, incredible story. We read that an angel shows up and uh, the chains fall off of Peter. And the angel's able to walk with Peter right by the guards. He probably did some kind of supernatural. You know, you don't see this. Yes. Led Peter right out into the open night air. And it was only when Peter's, uh, the cold air of the night hit Peter, that he go, oh my gosh, this is not a dream. This is real. And so Peter goes to the one place where he thinks the believers may be gathering. It's the home of John Mark's mother. And he knocks on the door. A servant girl by the name of Rhoda hears the knock and goes to the door. 
Who's there? Peter. Who? Peter. Peter who? Peter, Peter. Uh, It can't be you. Uh, Why can't it be me? Because the church is in there praying. You're supposed to be in prayer. Oh my gosh. God has answered the prayer. And so little Rhoda walks back or runs back to get the, uh, get the attention of the other believers who are there. And she says, Peter, he's out of prison. Well, you read it. It says they don't believe him. They're praying that he gets out, but they don't believe that he's actually out. And they say instead, it must be his angel. And why they think Peter's angel at the door is more likely than Peter himself, whatever that means, I have no idea. But it's an incredible chapter. You see, at the beginning of the chapter, Peter, or Herod is on the throne. Peter is in prison. And this movement called early Christian faith is threatened. At the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. Peter is free, going about ministry. And this movement called Christianity is starting to, continuing to go forward. And what's the difference between, what happens between the beginning of the chapter and the end? But the church was praying fervently for him. It was uh, almost 20 years ago now that I was talking to a pastor friend in Southern California. I really didn't know him that well, but I knew him well enough to have a conversation. And I was going through a difficult time in the church I was leading, and he was going through a difficult time uh, with a situation in his own church. And so we decided that what we would do is uh, to pray with for each other on the phone, but then we would check in every Thursday and pray for each other. And so we began to do that. I'd call on Thursday, or he'd call on Thursday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I would pray for him. He would pray for me. Well, that started something that continues to this day. And I can tell you, man, the stuff that we have prayed about, I mean, it covers everything that you can think about. But my friend Dane, on many different occasions, says, has simply said, Doug, do you know how many things we've prayed about? And you know how many prayers God has answered? And he's just gone on. He said, man, we've prayed about situations in church and stuff that goes on with staffing and our future and financial things and our kids. And look at what God has done in your kids. Oh my gosh, I can't believe what God has done in your son. It's absolutely, now your daughter and the jobs. And wow, it's just been absolutely incredible. And I know that some of you here say, well, Doug, I'm not sure I even believe in prayer. I think it's just coincidence. And I can tell you, I can't prove to you that God answers prayer. You can't prove to me that he doesn't. But I know this, when I pray, coincidences happen all over the place. So I'm just going to continue to keep on praying. Well, how do we apply this? You know, there are going to be times when people will come up to you and say, hey, would you pray with me about this? And they'll give you a situation that they want you to pray about. And you'll nod your head, telling them, I will be praying. There will be other times that you may be asking someone, uh, is there a way that I can be praying for you? Or how can I pray for you in the best possible way? And they'll tell you and you'll nod your head. Now, let me share with you the concern that I have. And the concern that I have is that if you've been in the church long enough, you get pretty good at nodding your head. We get pretty good at knowing the right questions to ask, 
knowing when it is that we need to nod our head, because quite honestly, we want to come across as spiritual people. The great fear I have, because I've done it myself too many times, is that we can leave those times when we've nodded our head and never pray. And I'm simply urging all of us here today, let's not do that. It's a matter of integrity that if we say we're going to be praying for someone or ask them how we can pray for them, that we do that. Now, there are some things that I have found helpful. One of them is to pray immediately with someone. So, you know, I've had all sorts of times when I've prayed with people in coffee shops or uh, sitting in cars or out in the parking lot or in a church building like this. Um, just a number of times when I've prayed with people. And I know that you have too, but you know, I think it would be such a cool thing for the church at Lake Mead just to be characterized by that kind of spontaneous prayer. So after the service, uh, would you pray for me? You're praying together. Out in the lobby, would you pray? For, how can I pray for you? You're praying together. Sitting in a car when you are on the phone. Someone today mentioned social media, you know, uh, as a way to do that. But you just actually spend the time to pray right there on the spot. Something else that I've been late to the game uh, in doing is actually writing down prayer requests. And it's hard for me to do that spontaneously, but when I'm sitting down with someone and I know that I'm going to have a more intense conversation with them, I will often bring my little brown book because that's where I record prayer requests. And it's been so, so helpful to go back and look that over that. Remember the people that I said I would pray for, actually pray about the things that we talked about. My goal, see if this resonates with you, my goal is to be praying for people when they know I'm not, they don't even expect it. It's just like uh, I, I prayed for them and uh, they never will know that I've done that. Another way that we can uh, join in prayer is to what I'm going to call pray the situation. Now, there's a great example of praying the situation in the scripture itself. So I told you before that Peter was really kind of sharing his itinerary with the Christians at Rome. And his itinerary looks something like this. And I saw Peter, Paul. Paul felt this very strong conviction to preach the gospel in places it had not been preached before. One Swiss pastor that I was reading uh, said that when he uh, was apprehended by Christ on the road to Damascus, he got caught up in a gospel current. And I love that. That carried him to preach in places where the gospel had not been known before. Well, Paul felt that in the area where he currently was ministering, and he wrote Romans from uh, Corinth, that the gospel had been preached enough. Not that it didn't, never needed to be more, but you know what I'm saying. And so uh, he wanted to go to Spain because he knew that Spain was a pioneer territory. And on his way to Spain, he thought, I can stop by Rome because Rome is sort of on the way to Spain. And I want to meet with the church at Rome. I've never been there before. I want to encourage the followers of Jesus who are there. And I want to be encouraged by them. And then they can send me on my way. But there was something that Paul needed to do first. He had been collecting money for an offering from the churches in Greece, the Gentile churches, and they needed to take that offering back to Jerusalem and give it to the Jewish church. Now, 
That's his situation. How would you pray? Well, you can think to yourself, um, there's a lot of travel here. I'm going to pray for protection. And he's taking an offering from Gentile churches to Jewish churches. We're hoping that the Jewish churches won't feel like the Gentile churches are trying to exercise their superiority. So I'm going to pray that the offering's received with favor. And Paul wants to get to Rome, so I'm going to pray that that will happen. And he is doing an awful lot of traveling. He probably is tired. We know how Paul asked the believers at Rome to pray for him because he recorded records it in verses 31 through 33. <clears throat> this is what he says, pray that I may be kept safe. It's a no-brainer, right? Protection from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received. He's talking about the offering having favor by the Lord's people there so that I may Come to you, he's talking about going to Rome, so he wants to reach that destination with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. He's talking about, he's knowing that he's going to be tired and he needs to be refreshed by them. Friends, praying a situation is not rocket science. You know, it's, it's, it's not. It's simply uh, looking at the struggle that another person's going through saying, what's really going on there? What are the dangers that they're going to face? What is the stuff that's going to be going on in their heart? What is the end result that God wants to be about? And then you simply pray for those things. And the great news is you never pray by yourself. Because the same Holy Spirit who gives you a love for people to pray for them will also be praying with you. Paul says in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit himself helps us when we don't know how to pray. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. <clears throat> well, I want to close with a, an illustration. And the illustration comes from ice hockey. So anybody here a Golden Knights fan? Oh, that's so weak. Good gracious. <laughs> Uh, you must all be rooting for some other team. I can't figure it out. But you're going to have to live with this illustration anyhow. So it's a big year for the Golden Knights, right? Yes. The Golden Knights won the Stanley Cup, and they did it with style. I mean, the last game was 9-3. to That is not a close game in hockey. Now, I've got to admit to you, I find it very, very difficult to believe that hockey is being played in Las Vegas. I grew up west of Chicago. It was never 118 degrees west of Chicago. And in the wintertime, what we used to do as kids is go out and we'd actually shovel the snow off the ponds that were frozen. We'd make the hockey rink out of the snow, put goals on either ends, and then we'd play hockey on those ponds. It was probably about 10 degrees when we were out there. So you can imagine how challenging... Oh, the other thing I should say is that the National Hockey League at that time consisted of six teams. The city of Chicago had one of those teams, the Blackhawks, and it was the southernmost team of all of them, or the southernmost city of any city that had a team. There were four cities in the northern United States with the team, and then two in uh, Canada. So you can see why I, I just think it's a little weird <laughs> to have the team from Las Vegas playing a team for uh, South Florida 
for the Stanley Cup championship. Be that as it may. Let me move to my illustration. And I'm going to have to change the rules of hockey just a little bit. But for those of you who don't understand hockey, the goal of hockey is to score a goal. May keep it like that. It's pretty simple, right? The team with the most goals at the end of the game wins. Now, the best time to score a goal is when your team has the power play advantage. And the way that you get a power play advantage is that someone else on the other team does a no-no and has to go in the penalty box. And when that happens, for the length of time that they're in the penalty box, your team is going to have a one-man advantage on the ice. Contrarily, or on the other hand, uh, the team that has someone in the penalty box is playing shorthanded. So you don't want to be shorthanded because you're going to have one less person. You want to have a power play and take advantage of that because you have one more person. Now here's how I think all this applies to Romans 15.30. When someone that you know is struggling, whoever that person is, it's like they're playing shorthanded. And in this particular game, you have the option of either saying, I'm going to let them continue to play shorthanded, or I'm going to get in the game with them. The way that you get in the game with them so that they don't struggle by themselves is by praying for them. But the moment that you begin praying for them, something else happens. All of a sudden, they begin to have a band advantage. And we're going to call this one a supernatural advantage. Because what happens is that the Lord Jesus Christ is invited into that situation through your prayers. Oh, and that makes all the difference. You know, if you live in the sports world like I have too much in my past, one of the things that you talk about is the GOAT. And the GOAT is the greatest of all time in any given sport. You know, so it's Wayne Gretzky in hockey or Michael Jordan in uh, basketball. And you can argue that. Some of you go, nah, it's not. It's LeBron. But okay, we're not going to go there. But here's what I want to say. Friends, listen to me closely. Jesus is so much more than the greatest of all time. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who left the glory of the Father because he didn't want to see us lose in the struggle. And he's the one who took on our human flesh as the God-man, lived a sinless life, so that he could experience the struggles that we go through. And at the end of his life, he walked up a hill and he took the nails in his hands and he took all of our sin upon himself and then rose again from the dead so that we could be victorious over our struggle with sin and Satan and death. And today he still doesn't let us struggle by ourselves because the Bible says he lives forever to make intercession for his people. And so what we have, friends, is we get to join in the struggle, but the moment that we do, we invite the Lord Jesus to join in that struggle. And that makes all the difference. I love the way the contemporary Christian song puts it, where it says, there was another in the fire. Standing next to me, there was another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding of how I've been set free, there's a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. 
And so there are people who are struggling. You know those people. They're shorthanded right now. But you have an opportunity to get in that game with them. And you get in the game with them when you pray for them. And the moment that you pray for them, you begin to give them that supernatural advantage because Jesus is also there with them. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggles by praying to God for me. And so what we want to do as we begin to wrap up our service and bring it to a close is to simply spend some time in prayer. And I'm going to ask those who are on the prayer team to come up at this time. There are a number of you here this morning who are struggling with something. And it's good that you don't struggle alone. You want to say, hey, would you join me in the struggle? And you've got people who are lined up here across the front who are so prepared to do that. And uh, I would invite you even to begin coming right now, but we're going to move into a time of worship and you can just continue to come. But even as you think about the struggle that you may be going through, uh, you may have friends. And you're saying, hey, would you join with me in praying for this friend, praying for this family member, praying for this situation, that God is just gonna intervene in a very, very powerful way. Uh, so let's just have a bunch of people that are joining in the struggle together up here. But I want to encourage those of you who aren't up here to take this moment to pray for someone. To just say, God, who is it that you want to bring to my mind? Maybe it's one person. Maybe it's two people. Maybe three people. God, who is it that you're bringing to my mind? How is it that I can be praying for them? And just take some time to do that this morning. And so could I invite you to stand? And as you stand, let's pray. And then let's continue to pray and pray and pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are right there in the struggle with us. And Holy Spirit, I thank you that you give us a love for people that we never would have on our own. And I thank you, Lord God, that we pray to you, God, that you care for us the way that you do. So Lord, we are just so, so thankful this morning that you've joined in the struggle with us. And Lord, I pray as a result that you would make us those who are observant, who have eyes to see, who would want to join in the struggle of our brothers and sisters, Lord, by simply bringing them to you. God, have your way now and move mightily with great power. We ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.